This content may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion advised. My brother had a cell phone, so he immediately called the police. While it was ringing, we heard a loud bang at the door. Someone was brute forcing it. I saw his face pressed up against the glass window, still watching me. But now his eyes were furious. He had been wearing a long black coat with the hood up despite it being the middle of July. Had a terrible smirk on his face. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you five true horrifying tales that will horrify and terrify. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show hearing from Reddit user Happy Ghost Pogs, featuring voice work by Tanya Eby, and We Need to Hide. So about 12 years ago, I was nine years old, and I was home alone with my 12-year-old brother. We were supposed to go to my aunt's house to have lunch and wait for my mother there. We always did that because we were too young to stay home alone, according to my mom. When we got up at 10.30 a.m., I took a shower, then my brother. After that, we were both in the bathroom brushing our teeth and finishing up when we heard someone knocking on our door. Since every time someone knocked at our door, They turned out to be salesmen or Jehovah's Witnesses. We kind of waited for them to go away. After a couple of minutes, I went to see if they were still outside through the window, and no one was there. What a relief. We continued getting ready when we saw a shadow go by through the bathroom window, which was kind of like a small square made with that kind of glass that makes everything behind it really blurry. We waited and saw in case it was just a bird flying by, when a hand hit it, clear as day. We got scared. We didn't know what to do. My brother had a cell phone, so he immediately called the police. While it was ringing, we heard a loud bang at the door. Someone was brute forcing it. I don't know if they were kicking it or ramming it, but it was one of the most frightening things I've ever heard. My brother told me to lock the bathroom door, so I did. It took five bangs so the perpetrator could finally bash open the door. Then the police answered. I remember the exact thing my brother said. He was whispering. His voice could barely be heard. Hello, there is someone in our house. I think they are stealing. Then a pause. We are at our address. Another pause. I'm with my sibling locked in our bathroom. Please hurry. Well, all that, I was sitting against the wall, hugging my knees. It was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences ever. I could hear the man going through all of our stuff, emptying stands, going up and down the stairs, opening cabinets. He even broke a few cups and plates. Then I heard the sound my cell phone does, 
when it turns off, and I remembered leaving it on the kitchen table. I felt so stupid for leaving it there. Things continued for a couple of minutes when we heard him trying to open the door to the bathroom. My brother got a hold of a big metal rod we had lying around there. He started kicking the door. Who is there? The man screamed. We said nothing. Another kick. Then another. I felt I was about to have an anxiety attack. My chest started to ache. I had chills and was really hot. I tried to remain calm, but it was just too much. After that, he stopped. We heard the door opening and then silence. We waited for almost 10 minutes before going out of the bathroom. The living was a total mess. Lots of papers and books on the floor. The cabinets were open, cups and plates on the floor. In our mother's bedroom, the nightstand and the closet were open and everything inside them was all over the place. Upstairs in our room, it was the same thing. In about five minutes, the man was able to go through everything we had and left a total mess. After that, my brother called my mom and she ordered us to go to my aunt's ASAP, so we did. When we got there, I was a little more relaxed. My aunt was waiting for us with ice cream, probably because my mom told her everything and she wanted to calm us down a bit. We went back home at about 5 o'clock. My mom told her boss she had a home emergency, so she left early. She tidied up the house, cleaned up and left everything the way it was before, so we could be relaxed. I really appreciate her effort and my aunts to calm us down and do everything so we didn't have to think about it. According to my mom, the police got home after she arrived, four hours after the incident. She explained everything, but because of lack of evidence, nothing could be done. The man was never caught. And honestly, I don't think they even tried to search for him. The next days, my mom was home with us. Now I tell the story as a funny anecdote. Luckily, no one was hurt, and he only took useless stuff. But at the time, I was really scared. To a nine-year-old, an experience like that can have serious repercussions. I'm lucky it never came to that, and I got over that after a couple of weeks. Looking for even more Disturbed? Join us on Patreon for ad-free listening, shout-outs, and Disturbing Calls bonus episodes at patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast. Apple users can subscribe to Disturbed Media Premium directly in the Apple Podcasts app. Up next, we hear from Reddit user I Like Mr. Rogers, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford. And we jump timelines. The setting, the mid-1990s, on a rural road in South Mississippi. It was springtime, just a few months before we were to graduate high school and leave everything we ever knew behind. My best friend's dad owned a used car dealership. The previous week, he had gotten a small, sporty Mazda convertible. His dad liked to give his new cars a week or so of running around to make sure he wasn't selling any lemons. So he gave us the keys and sent us off to give it a test drive around the rural backroads of the Pine Belt with heartfelt promises from both of us that we would be safe and definitely not speed or drive irresponsibly. A promise we kept to the next intersection before zooming out of sight. We'd been driving around for about an hour before coming to this one section of two-lane highway that ran through a floodplain for a small muddy water creek. The road was on an embankment so it wouldn't flood every time it rained, so there were steep 15-foot high drop-offs on either side of the road. I mean, there's no pulling over to the side of the road if you were to break down on this section of roadway. The stretch we were on was straight but had a small hill that crested at about the halfway mark of this half mile or so of asphalt. 
We had been enjoying our freedom and broken promises to his dad, and this particular moment was no different. We quickly ran up to a car that was very likely going the speed limit. They were driving way too slow for us in that little Mazda. My friend and I looked at each other with a grin. He downshifted and gave it plenty of gas, eager to leave the slower car in our dust. As we crested a hill, a blur of metal appeared in our lane, barreling towards us at an alarming speed. I mean, we weren't even a hundred feet from the other car coming straight at us. And I distinctly remember the driver in that car bracing himself, his eyes wide knowing his options for avoiding a collision were zero to none. My best friend and I yelled, oh shit, in unison as I squeezed my eyes shut, bracing for the inevitable collision. There was no way we could have missed that car. I saw the driver's eyes, I mean, he was so close. Impact was inevitable, except the sickening explosion of metal crunching against metal at high speed never came. I opened my eyes and looked to my left. I saw my friend's arm nonchalantly resting on the door, his mouth open as he sang along to the gin blossoms follow you down. It was a beautiful day. The roof was down, the radio blaring, not a car in sight, not even the one we attempted to pass. I blinked a few times, looked around to make sure I was believing what I was seeing. Not wanting to hear my friend gloat about how awesome of a driver he is, I didn't ask him how he avoided the other car. He didn't even seem phased about it. Look, I, I'm a skeptical man, but that incident was one of the two things in my life I simply cannot explain. In our 30s, when we happened to find ourselves in the same town one evening, we met up for beers. Between asking about our careers and family, I brought up the incident again. Yeah, remember that time your dad gave us the Mazda to drive around? And we almost hit that car? He thought about it for a second, and I saw the blood drain from his face. Holy shit, he said. I remember that. What the hell happened? I told him I didn't know, but I had hoped that he would have filled in the blanks. I felt an ice-cold chill race up my spine. Well, this past year, he brought his family to my town for a vacation. They came to my house for dinner, and I wanted to tell our wives this story and have him tell his side of it all. This time, my friends seemed to have no recollection of it, as if his mind had completely been erased of the experience. Even when I reminded him of our previous conversation about it, he looked at me with a blank stare, as if he never heard this story before. And so, the mystery of that near accident on the back roads of Mississippi remains unsolved. A strange and inexplicable memory that haunts me to this day. A mystery that seems to get stranger as the years go on. Get your voice on Disturbed with our hotline, available 24-7, completely free. Tell us your experience or just leave your comments on the show. Visit hotline.disturbedpodcast.com on your mobile device or computer. Up next is an email submission from Joe, featuring voice work by Alvin Balling II. And we're overcome by the fire. Seal Beach is a small beachside community in Orange County, California. In the Old Town area, everybody knows everybody. And since I grew up here, I'm even tighter with neighbors than most. Homes are fairly close together, so close that sometimes we could say hello to our neighbor through our window. It can be too much, but it worked for us at the time. We are now by a lake in Washington State and rarely see neighbors. On October 8, 2011, my wife and I would normally be sleeping in on this Saturday morning. 
However, today would be very different. My wife, Samantha, and I work from home. Samantha on her recipes and cookbooks, and me as a stay-at-home, as much as possible, restaurateur. On this Saturday morning, October 8, 2011, I was dreaming about Samantha saying, Do you smell smoke? I think there's a fire. Unfortunately, it was no dream. Shortly before 8 a.m., Samantha woke me up, asking if I smelled smoke. Nope. My allergies were keeping that smoke smell from me. So I found the energy to get out of bed, equipped with nothing but my birthday suit. I made it to the kitchen where a window looks out to the next street and Joni's apartment. I didn't spot Joni, but I did spot smoke and flames coming from her windows. I grabbed a pair of shorts and a fire extinguisher we had in our kitchen. My wife does a lot of cooking for her blog, so I had a fire extinguisher on the ready. I headed barefoot and shirtless down the stairs across the alley to Joni's. Up her stairs yelling, Joni! Joni's door was closed. I don't even remember trying to turn the doorknob. Somehow I found the strength to knock open the door. I could have sworn I heard somebody yelling, Help! Joni's two-bedroom apartment was filled with smoke. I started crawling, feeling chairs, couches, the floor for bodies, and yelling for Joni. I crawled through the living room, kitchen, main bedroom, bathroom, and finally the guest room and office, and spotted the office wall on fire. I raised the fire extinguisher and put out the flames. Feeling like nobody was now in danger, I remember saying to myself, I think I may want to catch my breath. I remember standing and walking toward the door. I took a deep breath of fresh air at the front door, and that's the last I remember until I heard people yelling, Man down! Man down! My first thought was, please, God, no. I checked every fucking room. Who is the man down? Turns out, I was the man down. I was taken to an ambulance, and I could swear I still heard somebody yelling for help. I refused the ride to the hospital, and my wife took me instead. Just as soon as she calmed down enough to tell me, I thought you were dead. If you ever do that again, I'll kill you myself. At the hospital, I was treated for smoke and chemical inhalation from the fire extinguisher powder and a torn up shoulder from hitting the ground after I passed out at the front door. Turns out, Joni was reading the morning paper with her magnifying glass prior to church. She set down the magnifying glass and set off to the 8 a.m. service at the church up the street. The sun came through the window, hit the magnifying glass, and started the newspaper on fire. Until we moved, Joni would send flowers every October 8th. Four days later, Wednesday, October 12th, a mass shooting happened, two blocks away from the location of the fire. Wounded and frightened people could be heard yelling, help, by people in the area. I never heard those yells for help. However, every year between October 8th and 12th, I dream of people yelling for help. Hi, I really like your guys' podcast. I listen into it on the bus um, to distract me from all the other noises and keep up the good work, guys. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder... All this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Disturbed. Now, back to the horror. Next up, we check in with Reddit user Paranoid Bump, featuring voice work by Nicole Doolin. And we have an eerie feeling about our surroundings. When I was 16 or 17, I was coming home to Brooklyn from a movie in Manhattan with my friends. I was the only one who lived in Brooklyn, so I walked home from the train alone. I was used to being out late by myself. I had a midnight curfew, but I frequently broke it, because I thought nothing bad would ever happen to me, despite an uptick of rapes and assaults in our neighborhood at the time. This night, however, I was actually slated to get home on time for once. It was the summer after I graduated high school, and I was feeling amazing. I'd had a little to drink and a little to smoke, and I felt like I was on top of the world. I remember that I was wearing this long sheer cape thing with a very tight and revealing little dress underneath. Not that anything would have probably been different if I'd been wearing shorts and a t-shirt. However, because of my fun little outfit, I was feeling myself and being so stupid taking selfies while I walked down the dark streets and listening to music with both headphones in, not paying any attention to my surroundings. I think I even sang as I walked. 
I got to my building after finishing my 10-minute walk from the train and walked up the steps to our apartment. We lived in a brownstone with apartments in it, and ours was on the third floor. We had a gate at the bottom of the steps separating us from the sidewalk. I pulled out my headphones and began to fumble with my keys at the top of the steps. Just as I had found the correct key, still humming to myself and thinking about my great night, I heard the latch on the gate clank as if it were being opened. I turned around and I saw a man standing at the gate, staring up at me. He was young, probably early 20s, wearing a gray hoodie with a hood up, covering part of his face. But I could see his eyes. And immediately I knew something was off because of how blank yet nervous his expression was. One hand was on the handle of the gate, as if he were about to open it completely, but stopped once I turned around. Somehow my fight-or-flight instinct didn't kick in yet. It was probably the alcohol. I cautiously called down, "'Can I help you?' and he didn't respond. I looked him over more closely, and realized then that his other hand, the one not on the gate, was moving, fast, low, near his waist. I registered that he was touching himself, gasped, and within milliseconds, he was sprinting up the stairs behind me, reaching out his hand to grab me. My brain clicked into place, and I started screaming at the top of my lungs as I jammed my key into the door and slammed it behind me. I ran up the stairs to my apartment, screaming for my dad, not even stopping to make sure the door was locked, thinking that if he followed me upstairs, he'd soon be met by my very tall father and our very loud dogs, who slept in the bedroom right next to our apartment door. As I looked over my shoulder while tearing my way upstairs, I saw his face pressed up against the glass window, still watching me. But now his eyes were furious. I ran into our apartment, still screaming to my parents to call the police. My dad went downstairs and looked around, but he was gone. The police came anyways after my mom called and came upstairs to take my statement so they could make their report. The two cops who showed up asked me to describe him. I did, and they said they'd cruise around looking for him. And regardless of whether or not he was found, a detective would call me soon to make a more detailed report. They never called me. There were many more rapes and assaults that continued to take place in my neighborhood for the rest of the summer. I shudder every time I think about what would have happened if I hadn't taken out my headphones before I began unlocking my door. I don't know how long he was following me for, and as far as I know, he was never caught. From that point on, for those last few weeks before I left for college, I would call my dad and make him meet me at the train station so he could walk me home safely. Now, as an adult, I am far more cautious than I was as a teenager. I am always extra aware of my surroundings, especially at night, and I don't look at my phone while I walk home. I'll never get the image of his blank stare as he lunged towards me out of my head. I will never forget the feeling in the pit of my stomach as I realized that he followed me home, watching me and touching himself, and was waiting to strike. It was like being a deer realizing it's being stalked by a tiger, because the tiger accidentally stepped on a twig and gave itself away right before it could pounce on its prey. I'm glad, but also sad that this story can serve as a kind of a lesson for people, especially young people. Always be aware of your surroundings, even when you think you're in a safe place. 
I was literally right at my doorstep, but so close to danger. It sucks that young women have to worry about shit like this, even so close to home. We shouldn't have to, but we do. Are you loving the show? Let us know with a positive rating and review. In return, we'll help you hide the body. And finally, we close out the show hearing from Reddit user Flowers for Boys, featuring voice work by John Patnode. And we see the hooded figure. My childhood best friend Mary and I were around 11 or 12 years old at the time. Mary's family had their own campsite on a provincial park about two hours from our hometown and would spend the entire summer each year living in their camper out there. This particular summer, I was able to go and stay with them for a week, and we were excited to spend our time adventuring around the forest. On the last night that I was there, we decided we wanted to hurry down to the ice cream shop by the lake before it closed. It was early evening at this point, still pretty bright out, but beginning to lose light. The path we took was down a short slope right next to the main road with maybe 10 feet of thick brush and trees in between. On the other side was the forest, with more tall, thick brush. So... We were walking along, not seeing a single other person on the path in front or behind us. We hear a sudden rustling and snapping of branches similar to the sound of maybe a deer moving through the woods. I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but then the sound of running footsteps follows. Mary glances back and suddenly grabs my arm, urging me under her breath not to look back. At the same time, the running stops. I don't know why I didn't ignore her and get a look myself. I guess I could sense the very real fear in her voice and chose to listen. We both start to panic, getting that feeling like when you're running up the stairs after turning the basement light off. We pick up speed as much as we can without breaking into a sprint, knowing the ice cream shop is only about a minute walk away at this point. The path soon breaks, and we're in the parking lot. Suddenly, Mary steers me hard to the left, heading towards the lake and the boat rental instead of continuing straight to the ice cream shop, and I go along with it silently. Understanding ice cream is no longer an interest right now. Mary is clearly panicking at this point. We're both looking around, but it seems whatever scared her is nowhere in sight at this point. Mary walks up to the boat rental and gets us a kayak, and we climb in and begin to paddle out to the middle of the lake. As we paddle, she tells me that there was a man behind us, and that the man had stopped running at us very abruptly upon making eye contact with her. He had been wearing a long black coat with the hood up despite it being the middle of July, had a terrible smirk on his face, and she swore that as he stopped running, she saw him put something shiny away in his coat. He appeared to have just emerged out of the bushes after we walked past, given the sounds we heard right before he came running onto the path. We reached the center of the lake and stopped paddling. I pull out my Nokia brick phone that my parents had, thank God, given me just in case, I hand it to Mary and tell her to call my parents to come pick us up. As the phone rings, I see her look out past me to the shore and go pale, lifting a hand to point to what she's seeing. I turn, and there is the man, stalking his way around the path that circled the edge of the lake, staring out at us. We sat in the middle of the lake and watched him do two full laps, never looking away from us, before finally disappearing. It took a few tries to get a hold of her family. We were freaking out so bad the whole time as the sun got lower and lower. 
We did manage to have someone come with the truck, but by the time we reached the shore, it was pretty dark outside. I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't been able to call for a ride. Looking back, I don't know why we didn't just go up to the ice cream shop and form an adult there and ask her parents to come and get us then, but it worked out. We got back safe. And we thankfully never saw the man again. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. Don't forget you can send in your own true terrifying tale, either in writing or send us a voicemail. Head over to disturbedpodcast.com slash submit to see all the submission options. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast. And a big thanks to our newest supporters, Nancy Erlenbach, Chris May, Cam Luz, Gina, Tiza Rosales, Eric Kemp, John Anderson, Cesar Herrera, and Abby Madison Brown. Thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio and Co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And don't forget to stay safe out there, y'all.